you know, at that point, I think I was starting to play better than I had before, just because I think I corrected some problems that I had uh, that I didn't realize I was doing because uh, I'm a more efficient player. I mean, uh, no doubt. I mean, I'm, that was probably the benefit of Bell's palsy is I became a more efficient player. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Guru Sang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Craig Kenny. Craig, well, he's a hidden gem. A world-class lead player, Craig's career did not take the conventional route. Instead of forging a name on the road or in the studios, Craig chose to stay close to home in south-central Pennsylvania, a decision that placed him in the perfect spot to spend two decades as a lead player for the legendary Dave Stahl. But his recent experience rebuilding his chops after a bout with Bell's palsy is a masterclass in determination and resiliency that every player can benefit from. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin! All right. Here we have another episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang, and I am joined by um, a gentleman that uh, you may not know, but I do know and I know personally. How about that? Uh, name dropping here on the show, and it is Craig Kenny. Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jose. Oh, Pleasure. man. Yeah. It, it, it's so funny. You know, uh, Craig, Craig and I live uh, maybe about 30 minutes away from each other, 40 right. minutes, you know, as the crow flies. Um, and rarely, if ever, see each other. I mean, we've right. seen a couple of times. Like uh, I, I came to catch on a, on a couple of gigs with Dave Stahl uh, years ago. And uh, you know, other than that, it's just like it's so funny how you're. Sometimes you can be so close to people and have so much in common, and you just right. never see them. Yeah, and you subbed for me on a local band, and the next day I had all kind of messages. Well, let's just leave it at that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Why you did you? You weren't very uh, happy. <laughs> they weren't <laughs> no you weren't very happy <laughs> oh you were oh yeah yeah well yeah that was that was a different story yep. uh, so uh anyway uh it's it's good to have you because um you know you've had a really interesting career um and i i find it um you know having talked to so many different trumpet players of of, of in different kind of stages in their careers and and, and different levels of exposure um yeah, you, you've had this interesting career because uh, you've, I'll, I'll backtrack for a second. I have talked to a number of people. I mean, I had a lot of respect for you, you know, uh, myself, uh, some of my other good friends who've played with you, like the, you know, our, our mutual friend, uh, late Dave Buffington. Dave, you know, had nothing but fantastic things to say about you and your playing. Um, but a lot of the cats that, that I know uh, that know you, uh, some of the more high-profile players, you know, some of the DC guys and and things like that, uh, say, you know, yeah, Craig is a beast. You know, he's one of the best lead players in the area, and it's like you're you're the player that everybody, that the people in the know know, but the the general the general trumpet world maybe not don't know much about you. Um, so, I mean, what what prompted you to go the route of, of staying? home as opposed to you know pursuing a, a traveling career well i i just well i have a really not a typical upbringing i mean i really never had a teacher to guide me along i didn't have a teacher till college 
Um, so, and living in Dallas town, you know, in the middle of nowhere, uh, it really wasn't really a lot of push towards, you know, you got to go here, you got to go there. Uh, when I was looking at colleges, um, I went to Temple University to look at it and it was such culture shock. I mean, I remember telling my dad, we're driving down Girard Avenue, seeing all the cars on the cinder blocks and, you know, one on fire. And I was like, I'm going home. I, I don't need this, you know? So, and, you know, in retrospect, I wish I would have forced myself to continue with it because maybe the path would have changed. Uh, but yeah, I came home and went to a small school in upstate Pennsylvania. Um, so, I mean, that kind of limited what I was doing and I'm, I was really tight with my family and it was one of those things where I think I was too young to make those decisions and I felt like I needed to stay home or central to my family. So I just never left the area. Uh, you know, I met my would-be wife then and uh, just things kind of stayed central Pennsylvania. So um, I've had opportunities, I've had offers, but I just never took them. So, um, you know, hindsight, <laughs> you never know, but. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that, that that's, but there's a, there's a major lesson there for a lot of people is, you know, that, that if family is important to you, if, you know, if an area is important to you uh, for whatever reason, then that needs, if that's important, then that's what you need to do. You need to stick with it. And a lot of times I think people, um, there's nothing wrong with putting those greater needs ahead of your career aspirations, right. you know, because, you know, you can still, you can still carve out a, yeah. a wonderful career for yourself. I, I have no regrets. It's fine. So I'm, I'm happy with what I've done and where I'm at. So, yeah. Well, and, and speaking of which, I mean, you kind of, you built a, a great career working uh, for years as the lead trumpet player for Dave Stahl uh, <laughs> in his big band and, and in his uh, sacred orchestra. Right. So, I mean, how, how did that, uh, that connection start? And, you know, what, what are some, I mean, cause you know, Dave is, you know, he's, he's kind of in that pantheon of, of uh, historic lead players of, of our right. generation. Um yeah, you know, and that and that book, you know, you 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 had some heavy lifting to do in that 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 band. So, you know, how did that get started, and and what are some kind of the the major lessons that you learned uh, in that process of of playing all those years with Dave? Well, funny thing is, um, I I really never heard of Dave Stahl. I mean, I've heard him, and didn't realize who he was or you know what he was all about. Um, I guess it was in about 1996. A friend of mine. Uh, locally here said hey you want to go hear a band in Lebanon it's a Dave Stahl band and he said come over to my house I just got an album and it was Anaconda and it was you know his scream machine and I was like yeah this is cool let's go that's fine so uh, we go to the gig and a friend of mine's you know the whole time he's like elbowing me he's like you got to get on this band you can do this easy you got to do this so uh, at that point in my career, I was only playing local uh, church and classical gigs. I mean, I, I had left pretty much all big band stuff alone for years. So, um, yeah, I, I went up and introduced myself to Dave and I gave him, I had a business card at the time and I said, you know, I'd like to get on my band or get on your band and, and see what it's about. So uh, this was probably about October and then... Um, he took my card, just kind of shook his head and grinned. And uh, by January, I had a call from him wanting to know if I wanted to sit in on rehearsal. So I did it. Um, 
there was a couple other guy, new guys there that night too, uh, that were kind of, you know, quote unquote auditioning. Um, but every chart he picked, I played in high school. Uh, it was like one after another. So I had them in, up my sleeve yet, you know, so I knew them. I mean, it was like uh, Woody Herman's La Fiesta and uh, a lot of Maynard charts and stuff that I already had done. Country Road, MacArthur Park and stuff. Uh, so I sat, you know, I played through the rehearsal and actually backtrack my friend uh, that took me to the concert. He also was invited to come up too. Uh, so after the rehearsal, I got called out in the hallway by him and he wanted to know if I wanted to join the band. And I, of course, said, yeah, I mean, I'm thrilled. So, uh, but my friend wasn't. So, you know, he's the one that talked me into going, but he wasn't asked to come back. So I feel bad for him. But um, so that's kind of how it all started. Uh, started in 97. Didn't play lead right away. That's fine. I, I got a lot of um, needed a lot of learning experience under his current lead player for a couple of years. Um, I don't know, it was probably about 1999, 2000, then, um, I got a chance to play lead and I made a good impression, I guess, playing the second book long enough that uh, he wanted me to come on, you know, stay on the lead book. So my first night on the lead book didn't go so well. I was chipping notes. I was having all kinds of problems. And after we're, we're done, Dave looks at me and goes, you're coming to my house for a lesson. And I was like, oh, geez. So anyway, I took some lessons from him, you know, it was, it was a learning experience. I mean, I didn't play the way he exactly wanted it because anybody that knows him, he's a perfectionist. I mean, you know, if you play a 16th note wrong somewhere in a chart, you're going to know about it. I mean, it's just, he's that meticulous about stuff. So anyway, um, you know, things progressed and uh, he started a, a sacred orchestra that played Sunday mornings, church services, and uh, I continued to be his lead player. And I guess around 2003, he asked me if I wanted to be his band manager. So, yeah, he calls me up one morning and he's like, um, you know, are you interested in it? And of course, I'm like, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do it. So, um, you know, he gave me the list of players I was allowed to use. And uh, we formed, reformed the band slightly and kind of everything else was history. I did, I did his uh, internet side, you know, the webmaster part, uh, did the scheduling, I did the uh, organized the guys for the band, kind of a middleman for the players. So, and did that up until uh, 2020. So, um, you know, I, I learned a ton. I mean, things didn't end well, but I got the utmost respect, respect for him because I still think he's the cleanest lead player that's ever lived. I mean, yeah, there's guys that played higher, there's guys played louder. I don't think there was anybody more accurate than Dave Stahl. I mean, it just, he was phenomenal and I learned a ton. So I, I have respect for him in that way yet. Yeah, absolutely. I, and it's, I can see, um, you know, being a lead player, uh, you know, playing, playing lead for a vocalist or playing lead for, you know, uh, a band fronted by a sax player. Okay. You know, it, it, it's, that's, that's a job. It, it's, it's hard enough as it is. But being a lead player for a band that's run by one of the greatest lead players, you know, in the business, that's got to have a level of intensity to it that is, uh, you know, it takes things up another well, notch. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, I mean, a lot of his book, you know, he always had great lead players. I mean, Joe Masello, almost every chart I'm playing has Joe Masello's name at the top because he didn't have one, two, three, four. He had Joe, he had Danny Kahn, you know, and et cetera down the line. So um, it was always, I was playing Joe Masello parts. So, I mean, those are huge shoes to fill. So, um, 
and then playing some of those charts in the late 80s i mean the the lead parts were phenomenally hard and then to imagine dave solo on, on top of that yet so yeah i mean it was it was uh an incredible learning experience i mean i owe, owe a ton to him for that i learned a lot i mean every night was a learning experience and yeah i mean when i first got on the band it was so intimidating because you made a mistake you turn around and look at you especially me i mean i was a hot seat so you know any little chip note i'd get a quick glare back and after a while i learned to look at other guys in the section so maybe he thought somebody else did it so <laughs> <laughs> that is an important skill to have how to deflect right. pass the buck <laughs> <laughs> now, so i mean in terms of of uh, of how playing that book i mean because you know like you're saying you're you're playing you know woody charts you're playing maynard charts you're playing all these these other kind of things um definitely high energy um that I mean, it it not only requires um the chops so you you've, you've got to have the chops to play it but there's a, a there are some specific stylistic uh nuances that need to be there um you know so if you're if you're uh, giving a recommendation to a young player like okay well you want to be a big band lead player here are some of the things that you really need to think about to make yourself uh you know best suited to be able to 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 fill the shoes if you get called to play a lead book on, especially on a band like that well i mean the one thing i learned was i mean you know a lot of people have the thing is make the, the music your own but in that situation you got to study the lead players that played that book like i mean when dave was on the road with all with all these bands he would copy the charts so that's how he accumulated a lot of these charts so when we played a buddy rich chart he played it the way buddy rich played it you know he, woody he played it way woody basie you played it in the basie style so you had to adjust in every chart you didn't just make it your own because however he recorded it with those artists is the way he expected it played you know, whether it be cutoffs are all different, you know, between the bands or just stylistically. I mean, so much different between Basie and Buddy Rich. I mean, it's an amazing difference. I mean, to, I mean, to me, Buddy's book is the hardest book possible. I mean, you're most demanding. So, um, but yeah, they all have their own nuances. You know, the Woody Herman book. I mean, Woody Herman was more about playing it like Chase did, not so much the way Dave did because he wasn't with Woody that long. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, my advice to young kids growing up is listen you can't listen enough and don't just listen to one player i mean you know with basie you know pick out all the lead players throughout all the generations and stuff no not just one person uh the same with buddy i mean yeah listen to dave Stahl, but listen to Lib lynn viviano um you know listen to them all and then see what because you know overall they're still the same style it's just the way the lead players you know might have changed a little bit up uh, but yeah, my, my voice, to, uh, you know, people starting out with the big bands is listen, I mean, it's invaluable, really. I mean, these kids today don't know who these artists are and it's sad. Um, uh, I have a student that I was teaching and I was like, you know, this is a chart that was made famous by Woody Herman and I had no idea. I'm like, all right, well, your, your lesson for next week is find your Spotify app and search Woody Herman because that's all the kids know anymore. It's not like you can pull out a CD. Um, so um, actually, I offered to give them a CD, and they're like, "How do I play this?" And I'm like, "Well, all right, never mind. How about Spotify?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, you know, and this to me is is uh, I mean, I'm showing my old age on this, you know, becoming the grumpy old man. But one of the things that I dislike about 
our, our modern, you know, technology and things like, you know, streaming services. I miss liner notes. Me too. I mean, I couldn't wait. You know, I actually used to manage a record store um, back in the, the 90s, early 90s. And we would get in, you know, we get in these albums and, you know, playing them so that, you know, the, the people would want to buy them. And I would just, I would always just like scan the liner notes. I would stand behind the counter and read the liner notes. And, and I, I was a huge, uh, you know, like so many trumpet players is a huge uh, fan of Jerry Hay and, and his work. And anytime something came in and I saw his name on the liner notes, I immediately bought it. Yeah. I don't right. care. I don't care what kind of music it was. I just bought it because I, you know, I really loved what he did and I, and I would just, I would want to listen to it. You know, that might be the only track I ever played off of it. Right. But, well, that's, that's the way I was in the late nineties. It's like when I bought a CD, I'd look at the liner notes first. It's like, you know, I wanted to know who exactly was playing in the sections and you yeah. can't do that now anymore. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear stuff, you know, on the radio all day. It's like, Oh yeah, that's really cool. I like that. Who I wonder who that player is. And right. You know, now granted, if you, you do get to a point where you can identify people by their sound, you know, right. if, if there's somebody who's got, you know, you could, you could identify, uh, you know, Lim Biviano by his sound, like the, you know, 99% of the time, <laughs> you were spot on if it was Lin, uh, right. you know, so, you know, there, there are players that you, you get accustomed to their, their sound or their approach, but when it comes to new players, when you want to try to get exposed to new, uh, new sounds and new concepts, I think it's so important to be able to, to know who it is. So then you can do the research. So, right. yep, I agree. Yeah. hundred percent. I'm, I'm a grumpy old man then too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's, it, it is what it is, but uh, yeah, I, I do spend time out. What I'll do is if I find something that I like um, it doesn't always work, but I'll go to, to all music um, right. and, and then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll use Shazam and then I'll go to all music and I'll look for, you know, any of the credits on it. And sometimes they have the credits and sometimes they don't. And I think it's a shame because, uh, you know, if, if you're an artist contributing to something, uh, even if you're just, you know, if you're just the session player, it's nice to get a little bit of recognition. You know, it's nice to get, get a little bit of, of uh, you know, some of your resume besides just your paycheck, although the paycheck's right. nice. So <laughs> give me both. Don't, you know, if I have to make my choice between the rest of reg, you know, recognition and the paycheck, give me the paycheck. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, speaking of, of different lead players, I mean, who are some of the, the players that influence you in your, your approach to, to the horn? Well, actually, ironically, you know, in high school, I was listening to a lot of the Woody Herman records that Stahl was playing lead on. But again, at that point, I was, wasn't putting two, two and two together. And without having a teacher really, you know, saying, you know, look at this, look at that. I mean, my high school had an outstanding jazz program, but it wasn't like somebody was a trumpet guru, you know. So, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Dave actually, you know. Some of those uh, Thundering Herd albums, ironically, he, he was who I was modeling myself because we were playing those charts in high school. Um, you know, of course, you know, Maynard, I don't consider a lead player, but I mean, my main, my main teacher growing up was playing along with Maynard albums. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, my, I guess my really first lead player that I got obsessed with was Wayne Bergeron, like probably most other trumpet players. Um, you know, I, I heard him, actually, I heard him in high school on Backtrack. Uh, it was 1986. Uh, Maynard was at my high school and it was uh, Wayne, it was Roger Ingram and Pete Olstead. And I, I had no idea what I was hearing. 
And it's like, now I'm sitting back saying, holy crap. I mean, you know, I didn't appreciate that then. I mean, what a, what a section. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, I mean, Wayne, Wayne's a big influence on mine, on mine cause he's so clean. Um, he's got a different style than Dave. Uh, so it was, you know, just another person to study. Um, Roger Ingram, definitely when he was playing with Harry Connick, you know, I was always listening to him, his phrasings and stuff. Uh, and Bill Chase actually with Woody Herman. I mean, I was listening to that years ago too. Uh, and again, didn't realize the greatness of what, you know, I was listening to. So, um, those were primary, primarily my, uh, you know, lead guys. I mean, of course, listening to Maynard, I was always hearing Stan Mark. So, uh, and you know, my first album was MF horn two. My parents got me when I was real young. And I remember in seventh grade, I was playing along with that album. And it was like, you know, that was, that was the coolest thing ever. Cause I didn't have anybody really, you know, give me music to play. So I just grew up playing in school band and then at home, I'd come home and play with the Maynard record. So and try to duplicate it <laughs> so and that that's actually an interesting question uh, i think to to discuss is since you didn't have a teacher you know um your development of your upper register um was the, the this obviously seems to be something then you kind of stumbled onto in, in terms of, of that development and, and that that mastery of it uh, as opposed to having having a teacher that's sitting there you know talking about you know, this method and, and this mouthpiece placement and how the airstream works and stuff like that. You just kind of, did you just basically kind of figure it out on your own then? Well, I mean, I, again, I had outstanding teachers in school. So, I mean, they got me through the basics, but there was a small, or there still is a small music store here in Dallastown and uh, came across a Jet Tone Bill Chase mouthpiece. And this was probably about 1981 or so. And I started playing that probably about fifth grade. <laughs> you know, I didn't play the seven C. My brother actually started me on trumpet. So, I mean, I, I did play on a seven C for a while, but, you know, it was one of those things where I kind of was nosy on my own and saw this Bill Chase jet tone. And I played that throughout most of high school, even. Nobody said a word to me. And I was making district band, regional band, whatever, with no, you know, no issues. So nobody was there saying, you know, you don't sound good on that. You know, it's not your typical progression, but uh, yeah, it was one of those things where I just, uh, well, and it wasn't Bill Chase jet tone, it just said BC, you know? So, um, but yeah, I mean, I started playing that and I got into a community band around the area and I really, uh, kind of grabbed onto some local players that were, you know, four or five years older than me that I really respected. And I remember them looking at me saying, why aren't you playing a different mouthpiece? You know, you really need to get back to like a Bach five or three or something like that. So actually in high school, I tried to force myself to go to bigger mouthpieces because, you know, that was quote unquote, the right way to go. I never could play a big mouthpiece. And um, again, you know, it was just more of my own practice on my own and determination. So um, I really didn't have anybody get mad at me for what I playing until I got to college. Well, actually backtrack to get into college, you know, I really wasn't a scale player. I wasn't technical player. So when I had to find out, you know, what I needed to know to get into college, it was a big learning curve because I didn't do that stuff without having somebody at home, you know, saying play your C scale, F scale, you know, I didn't do that. So, you know, there was a lot of panic right before the audition to uh, get into school, even, you know, to know some of the basics, what I sh which I should have known already. Um, 
but yeah, the high register just came natural. I mean, I'm not saying it was because it was a small mouthpiece. It just, it all was natural to me. And, uh, when I did get to college, um, first thing out of the professor's mouth was that's not a Bach trumpet. That's not a Bach one and a half C. And I'm like, yep. And I'm not switching. So <laughs> we never got along that well. Because, uh, you know, he was down that road where this is how you had to play to do it, to make it. And I'm like, guess what? I, you know, actually, by that time, I moved on to Jerry Callett, took lessons from him the summer before I started college. And uh, I was playing his horn and his trumpet. So, um, yeah, I wasn't very well liked in the classical <laughs> professor's mind. So, um, but yeah. no, I mean, the, the upper register always seemed a little easier for me. Um, I bought a piccolo early on because like I said, after high school and college, I played a lot of wedding church stuff and I love piccolo. I mean, that was like, I think that was one of my uh, best ways to clean my upper register. I mean, just learning the finesse it takes instead of being brute strength. I mean, it's more of a finesse thing. So uh, I think that's really what stemmed my upper register now. So, yeah. Well, I mean, there, there are a couple interesting points there that, that stick out to me. I think what you're talking about, you know, like loving to play the pick and stuff like that. Um, I remember Vaughn Nark uh, saying to me uh, once, uh, well, he said on, when, when I interviewed that when, when I was studying with him, um, he said, yeah, there, there are people that play in the upper register and then there are people that, that hear the upper register. And those, those are two different things. And so you can, yeah. you can tell the difference between someone who, who the, their sound concepts and, and the way that they play the instrument, they are hearing, you know, more than the, the pitch itself. They're, they're actually, that's, that's the frequency that they want to be in. Yeah. And it just comes very natural to them um uh, you know and it, it sounds like to me that that that's something especially like your exposure when you know we when you got bit by the maynard bug like so many of us uh especially in that period you know that the the 80s nine seven like 70s 80s 90s seemed to be like if you were in high school and you're a trumpet player you were you were you're playing along the maynard records um so you developed that that sound model in your head that that like oh yeah trumpet is supposed to be you know, like that. So right. that's, that's what you gravitate towards. And then, you know, the, the other thing was, um, and it's kind of related. And I mean, I'm, I'm speaking from my own personal experience on this too, is that you do have that. Uh, sometimes you're better off not having a teacher because many teachers create the limitations on your playing that if you're just if you're just experimenting with it and if you don't know that you're not supposed to play on this mouthpiece on a small mouthpiece to get a big sound uh yeah if, if no one ever says that to you then you just do it and you find a way to create the sound that's, that's in your head and in your body and your soul and um you know i, I think sometimes that that music edu educators of all kind um they sometimes do more harm than good. And I don't think it's intentional. It's just that, you know, it's like, well, this is That's the way they're taught. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they just repeat that because, I mean, I went through the same thing with, as you did of, you know, I, when I got into college, I, you know, I was playing on a jet tone. I was playing on a T2C uh, <laughs> and a Holton ST302 is playing on an MF horn. And, you know, the first thing they did is like, well, they did three things. They said Bach one and a half C, Bach 37 and change your embouchure. Yeah. You know, and in, instead of, okay, how can we take these things and tweak them 
you know, and improve on, on some concepts, uh, it's just wholesale change and it just didn't work. And, you know, I ended up well, just getting I, out. I mean, if I would have had a teacher, I, I probably wouldn't be playing where I'm at. I mean, cause they would have ripped me down. They would have made me start over. They would have certainly had me on a three C or one and a half C, you know, trying to force it. Cause that's the way it has to be. And that drives me nuts when, you know, students come in, I mean, not everybody's made to play a seven C or a five C or three C. So it's just, um, you know, I kind of, I, your interview with Lynn Nicholson, I mean, I, Lynn hits it on the head. I mean, you should play the smallest mouthpiece you can within reason that you can do everything you need to do on it. I mean, I just, um, I never was for the progression that, you know, the standard progression for trumpet mouthpieces. So, and I, that's the thing that the teachers are taught in school, you know, this is what the kids should be playing at this point. If they're not trumpet players themselves, that's what they're going to make their kids play. I mean, they're going to go by that progression. I'm sure it happens on other instruments too, not just trumpet, but. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me because, um, you know, it's like, if you take trombone, for example, um, if you're starting a kid on trombone and, and he's say, I don't know, eight years old, you're not going to give him a bass bone. Right. Right. You no. Know? And, and you're, you're probably going to give him a, a short, one of the, those short scale, trombones you know because their arms aren't long enough to get to seventh position or you, right. you, you know so it's like okay well you know it's a small kid so we need to make equipment that's, you know even like with you know guitars and basses you know making short scale stuff so it's easier for them to play physically so you know if because bud herseth played you know a one uh, even though, you know, we all know if anybody who doesn't know the story, please, you know, check, check out, check it out. But the reason Bud played a, played a one was because he had an accident and, you know, he had scar tissue. So he had to play a larger mouthpiece to get around, around the scar tissue. Um, but, you know, you've got a grown ass man playing a big mouthpiece and to expect, you know, someone that's, you know, 10 or 12 years old, that's much smaller and has less developed musculature to play that same size. That's insane to me. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Nuts. And you everybody's know? built so differently. I mean, you can't, you can't just do that. I mean, it's not yeah. an answer for everybody. I mean, you can't do that. I mean, I know some other teachers that, you know, instead of seven C, they start every kid on a five B, you know, it's just, I don't know that that's the right answer either, but I mean, it's just at least they're thinking about it, you know, that it's maybe not seven C's, maybe not necessarily the right beginning mouthpiece for everybody. So, yeah, yeah. I know it, it's like everything, um, everything is made up by someone, yeah. some right. point, you know, somebody yeah. just one day, yeah, it, you know, the, the heavens didn't open up and you know, <laughs> a five, uh, seven C came floating down and this is the, the mouthpiece that, that all the players are starting. Somebody started that and, right. You know, for whatever reason, you know, maybe they, you know, they thought it was, that was a sound, sound uh, solution, but um, just because that's the way it's always been done, doesn't mean that's the way that we should always do it. Right. And, you know, so, I, so as a teacher, I mean, how do you go about, uh, you know, helping your students, uh, you know, find a, a mouth, it's, you know, it's mouthpiece seems to be a very popular topic. Uh, how do you, you help a, a kid pick, pick the gear that, that's going to help them out the best? It, it all depends. Um, you know, I, I don't teach as many private students as I used to. I have more adults than I have, uh, you know, kids at this point. But uh, as far as kids go, I mean, I, I do let them start on the 7C. But if I see, you know, I, like I got a kid right now, he's only been playing a year and he's already playing to high F above high C. And it's like, 
he sits here and warms up and I'm like, where'd you learn that? And he's like, I learned it from you. And I'm like, oh, uh oh, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, I'm thinking about right now trying to maybe move him on maybe 10 and a half C or something, go that direction instead of where he's at. Um, you know, I also have another student that always is complaining that this, the mouthpiece hurts his lips all the time. You know, he practices, but yet he always has a crease. So maybe a different rim size for him. Um, I don't know. It's again, it's so individual right now. Um, you know, I have an adult student that came back after 30 some years of playing and, uh, you know, he switched to a, a Bobby shoe mouthpiece now because it was more comfortable. And that's the way you should approach it. What's comfortable, not what you should, you know, what somebody tells you, you need to play what's comfortable for you. So, um, but yeah, I get it. I mean, you still have to develop too. I mean, it's, you got to have a mix of everything. You can't just, you know, automatically start somebody out on a certain mouthpiece uh, expecting the world. So, yeah. Um, well, I, I, so I, as as someone whose whose reputation is primarily that of a lead player, um, how do you uh, how much time do you spend working with someone on on developing uh, you know the, the chops to play, uh, and then you know how do you uh, how do you create a more I guess a more global approach to the horn you know in in terms of not just jazz literature but you know classical literature and, and things like that. I mean, how how do you how do you prefer to do it? I know everybody's individual depending on, you know, what they're desiring to get out of the process as well, but, uh, you know, kind of a, as a, as a general approach, you know, how do you look at, at the development of, of your trumpet skills? Well, with the younger kids, I mean, I like to get the Clark studies in as early as possible. Cause I think those, you know, not necessarily the way Clark wrote them, but, you know, adding some interpretations on it, you know, maybe adding, uh, doing light tonguing and stuff, um, you know, and doing some books that, uh, you know, more long tones and stuff, try to get a little bit of everything involved as early as possible, not just wait for it to progress to that point. Um, cause I don't like to teach out of only one book. I like to add things in. Like I I've got a student now, fifth grader, I, I printed out a jazz lead part or not lead, but, uh, jazz head, uh, to Charlie Parker tune. And it's like, uh, I just want you to learn this. I mean, maybe he'll take some interest in that. You know, I'm trying to expose it earlier instead of waiting, you know, a couple years down the road. Um, because, you know, you don't know what you might miss otherwise. I mean, but yeah, I mean, I, I tried to, um, as far as upper register teaching it, I don't really specifically say, you know, this is what we got to do to do this. Um, I think the Clark studies, are fantastic in, in helping that along. Um, I, again, the parameters of, of that book, I mean, yeah, it's written more in the staff and stuff, but I like to go expand on the exercises, you know, out of what is written uh, to develop the upper register. Cause I still think, you know, that was one of the first things with stall with the lesson, you know, I was doing Clark studies. I was practicing high light and actually with practice mutes in. And I gained accuracy with that. I gained um, a lot of upper register, you know, because you learn how to, you know, with the, the practice mutant stuff, it kind of changes everything that you're approaching with playing. But playing high and light and light tongue, I think, um, I think for me anyway, that's really where I started to take off for uh, the upper register. But again, you know, I try to apply as much as I can to the younger students. 
um, each, each his own. I mean, there's some kids that don't even, they're not interested. They just want to play, you know, the method book as it is. And they're kind of reluctant to learn. I actually have a student that doesn't want to learn note names. And I'm like, this is very frustrating. You know, you got to know note names, but, um, I have to adapt or try to figure out a way to teach it to him without him realizing I'm teaching it. Yeah. You know? So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't have one way of doing everything. I mean, I kind of let everybody develop their own little niche in their playing. So, yeah, um, it's tough. I mean, it's completely different. I mean, you know, I, I think the kids today just have so many more things that they're looking forward to, you know, as soon as the lessons are over, everybody's running out of the house waiting to get on their game unit or something or on their phone it wasn't that way when i was growing up i mean yeah i didn't have lessons but i had friends that you know they sat in practice because what else was there to do <laughs> yeah well and you and you instilled that that musical uh passion uh to to your offspring as well haven't you yeah absolutely my youngest uh is or my oldest is killing it right now i mean she's already graduated temple and she's in chicago now uh for her master's in clarinet and uh she already has a, an orchestra gig out there. So I don't know. We'll see how that progresses. Uh, and my youngest, you know, she has the talent, but she chose to go a different path in college next year. So I tried <laughs> one out of two is not bad, but my youngest has the same talent. She just, uh, she just didn't take the interest. My oldest does, but um, yeah, my oldest is my mini me. I mean, she, she um, actually, she's better than anything I've done. So <laughs> Well, it's nice to know there's another generation of candies out there. Yeah. Uh, yep. Or maybe maybe that's something to be scared of. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nope. she's got she's got more opportunity than I ever had. So I'm very proud of both of them. Well, and, and that's good. And and, and you know, and it's, and it's kind of interesting in that you know you've got one that, that's choosing to go down that musical path, uh, you know, and then then the other who's. I'm sure that music will always be a part of her life, but you know she's, she's choosing to do something else. Uh, you know, much like you staying, staying true to, to herself, you know, staying right, true yeah. to her heart. So, you know, you, you can't, you, you can't blame someone for, for doing that. And I think sometimes, yeah. it, you know, I've seen too many uh, people who are, you know, whatever it is, it, we'll just use, you know, musician or, you know, even trumpet players specifically, you know, it's like, you know, I'm a trumpet player and, you know, my kids are going to be trumpet players and they're going to be professional trumpet players. And, you know, you, you can't do that, you know, and, you know, you can't, you can't expect them to follow in your footsteps. You know, all you can do is uh, provide the guidance and the love and the support and then let them grow to be their own. Absolutely. You know, so. I mean, I was hoping for trumpet players. I tried, but I just didn't win. <laughs> I mean, when my, when my oldest picked a clarinet, I was like, really? We got to find another teacher. I could help you on trumpet. But um, my youngest almost played trombone. So, but I'm glad she stuck with flute. So she's still going to play in college. It's just not going to be her main thing. She's going for criminal justice and she'll play in the, the college band and what have you. So they have a jazz band. So she's hoping to continue, you know, at least having music in her life. So that's fine. Well, you know, and earlier you mentioned something in, uh, it actually kind of, this is a good segue into that. Uh, you talked about uh, when you were younger playing in community bands, um, and I know that right now that you are playing in some community bands as well as, you know, doing your, you know, doing your professional you know, hits and things like that, uh, you know, Philly and DC. And, and uh, I know you just did a, a big show up in Reading, uh, Berks Jazz Fest, uh, you and 
uh, Randy Brecker and um, uh, Rick Braun. Rick Braun. Yeah, yeah, what a section. Ooh, man, <laughs> killer, killer. Um, but you, you know, you still also do community band stuff, and I think that that's that's something I think a lot of people don't take advantage of. Um, and you know, sometimes community bands fall apart because there's not enough support for them. Um, or people don't know about them. So you, you, you lose the, the influx of talent, but, um, you know, I feel like that's, I, cause I always did that, you know, any opportunity I had to play, especially play with, with older cats, more community cats. When I was in high school, high school, I'm, you know, playing with my band directors and, you know, people like that in, in, uh, community groups. Um, so what do you see the role of, of community bands, uh, community organizations? And, uh, you know, what, what do you see as, as being the, the benefit of them and maybe some suggestions that people would have either if they either want to join one or maybe start one of their own. Yeah. I mean, sadly, most of the community bands are gone. I mean, when I was growing up, there were so many different, you know, every Saturday night church picnics, you know, it was always some little concert band going on, but uh, I think it's the greatest thing for young players to get exposed to older players. I mean, I really push it. I mean, I think it's a great thing for a seventh or eighth grader to sit alongside a senior in high school playing because, you know, it just promotes that much more growth. I mean, I think my, I mean, I learned the most from that in my middle school years because there were some guys that were in high school that I just really looked up to me and they took me under their wing. And I was, I was so grateful because again, I didn't learn, have anybody teach me double tonguing and these guys, you know, like, this is how you do it. You know? So I learned a lot. And then playing in those community bands, a lot of those marches and stuff, you had to use that. So I gained a, a ton of experience. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, sadly, I mean, it's just the community bands right now are really older players. And it's like the youth are not following that path, again, because there's so much other stuff for them to do. Um, but I think it's the greatest thing because, you know, it's sometimes the professional playing isn't always fun because, you know, you got your demands you got to keep up to. And a lot of times community bands are more fun. I'm not saying that I don't have fun on gigs, but I mean, it's just, it's a night and day scenario when you can just go play and have fun with friends and stuff. And um, yeah, I, I just, the importance of it. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I learned a ton from it. I mean, I wish, I wish there was more groups around. It's hard to start anything up because, you know, again, the kids aren't, outside of school, they really aren't doing a whole lot. So, um, I don't know. I, I was su super grateful for, there was a guy that was four years older than me and a guy that was five years older than me. And, uh, I just, um, you know, they took me under their wing and without them, you know, I wouldn't have learned the technical part of trumpet in high school, really. I mean, I, and that was after they were out of high school, I was playing in community bands with them and looking up to them. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's sometimes I feel like um, you know, it's if if a band is available, um, it that's always the first part. You know, it's got there's gotta be a band, band available. But uh, you know, not not every kid has got the uh the gumption to put themselves into those situations. You know, it's like you know, that that shyness and stuff like that. Um and I think that sometimes it's because the other players in the band make it intimidating. Right. Uh, so, you know, if, if it is a warm and welcoming thing and it's, you know, 
that yeah yeah certainly you want the best out of every person but you're not ex you're not having the same expectations uh in that band like if you have a if you're in a community jazz band for example you're playing in a community big band um the the expectation should always be that you do your best but the level of expectation uh on that gig or you're playing in that band is going to be different than like if when you were playing with Dave and you know if you if you yeah, chip yeah. the 16th note you know you're you're <laughs> the, the the stare of death um so uh I, you know how, how do you go about making you know less experienced and not even just younger players but just less experienced players uh feel comfortable uh to be in an organization with you particularly if it's like a community based thing as opposed when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply opposed to being, you know, a high profile paying gig. Well, first of all, they got to understand it's not a competition. I mean, not, none of the musical ensembles of any sort should be a competition. I mean, you need be to, you know, play as a unit, not, you know, say I can do this better than you. And, you know, trumpet players get the bad rap of that, especially. Uh, but, you know, and I think at the lower levels, it's too much of that competition because, you know, in my own experience, the better players support each other, you know, you know, um, I got the sub for a guy down in DC and it's like, and I played in a section where, you know, I didn't feel like I should have even been part of, but this guy's made it so comfortable to play and they supported me. So I, I wish younger players could feel that same part because I know in high school, even to this day, you can tell that it's always competition who can end on the higher note. You know, it's like, it's not about that. It's about making music. And I think we lose that, uh, and it's immaturity too. I mean, it goes hand in hand. But uh, yeah, when I when I have a kid, um, if I have uh, somebody that's sitting in a section that's not as experienced, I mean, I try to f make them feel comfortable. I try to compliment them. I don't rip them apart. I mean, that's not what I'm there for. I mean, you got to gain confidence. I mean, my my thing, I'm a shy person. I mean, typically without my trumpet in my hand, I don't talk. Uh, you know, and leading my own big band, that's been the biggest problem because I don't like to talk in front of people. Um, but it's a confidence thing. You got to learn it. You know, um, you got to learn the fact that not everybody's judging you. Yeah, there's always going to be somebody in the audience that's going to judge. But um, but within a section, you got to support each other. I mean, and not rip them down. You know, don't constantly critique things. I mean, yeah, you need to give advice, but you got to learn how to do it too. I mean, you can't yell at somebody for chipping a 16 note. <laughs> well, you can, but it's not a good thing to do. So. Right. It happens. <laughs> Just yeah, because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah. Right. Everybody makes a mistake. So, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and, and I, I kind of want to transition now to, uh, you know, you were talking about you know, your, your new big band, uh, which I think is exciting. And I can't actually wait to, to hear you guys play. It's like, it seems like every time, I've Me too. Playing, I just can't. You know, it, like you, you're you're doing the. Is it? I always get. Is it Andrew or Pete new? Andrew new. He has a big band in Philly. I'm yeah. I'm his lead player too. Yeah, that that I would see like some things with, with the Andrew new band. Like, oh, Craig's gonna be playing. I should go. Uh, I got a gig. Uh, you know, or oh, I got to go out of town. So I'm gonna catch you soon. 
I, I, I promise. I swear. I swear. But um, you know, you you went through um, an experience that uh, that I wanted to talk about, and I think this this is really the the one of the main things I wanted to talk with you about because I think it's something that that is so important for many players. Uh, you went through uh, about a Bell's palsy, which prevented you from being able to play. And you kind of had to, to retool your your approach to trumpet playing, um, and there are so many different things that are that are important. I think in in what happened in that uh, yeah how you dealt with how you dealt with coming back and coming back at a high level uh, after such a you know devastating uh, incident. Um, and then, you know, so the, it's, there's the, the technical side of things, but also the mental side of things and like, you know, dealing with the anxiety or depression or, you know, fear, a concern that, that we all feel when, when we feel like we're never going to be able to play again. So, uh, you know, let's maybe talk, you know, get into that and, you know, like what happened, how you dealt with it, uh, from the technical perspective and, and how you had to deal with it from a mental perspective. Yeah. I mean, it was tough. Um. I guess it was September of 2019, um, right after I turned 50, man, it's like that age and then everything goes down quick. I got sick the following weekend after I turned 50 and I had thrush and I had it for a couple weeks, uh, actually, uh, stall, we had some gigs and stuff and I actually had to end up playing the fourth book because the thrush had my chops so screwed up, um, I mean, luckily I've had great section players that I, you know, I can trust to fill in. I mean, um, so yeah, I, I moved myself to the fourth book to get through a couple of weeks having thrush and, um, it, it got better and it got better. And then all of a sudden in like the third week of October, I wake up and my right side of my face is just hanging and I didn't know what to do. I mean, I thought, well, I probably had a stroke, you know, and sleep or whatever, but, um, so, uh, called my doc to get an appointment. Of course I couldn't, couldn't get into the later day. So I sat at home, of course, diagnosing myself. It's like, you know, Google this, Google that, Google that. So I became my own doctor. Um, you know, and I kind of figured out it was Bell's palsy before I even went to the doctor. Uh, so the thrush actually triggered the Bell's palsy which I had no idea. I mean, there's so many things that causes Bell, Bell's palsy, but thrush is one of the viruses that can, you know, affect that. So um, went to the doctor and the doctor agreed, you know, it's Bell's palsy, like, yeah, like I'm my own doctor. Um, you know, I was put on some meds and stuff to deal with it. And, and he's like, oh, you'll be fine. You live, you live through Bell's palsy. It's no big deal. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm a trumpet player. And I was, you know, wasn't sure how this was going to happen. So the next day, you know, it was one of those things where I started watching videos on Bell's palsy and, and other trumpet players. And, you know, there's some horrific cases of Bell's palsy that's just eliminated careers. I mean, guys that had it so bad that they never came back from it. So I decided I was going to get on Facebook and put a video of me playing. And at that point, I might have been able to play maybe E in the staff to B, and that was it. Everything else was just air. I mean, I lost all the air out of the side of my mouth. Um, I couldn't play. So I let it go on Facebook, and I'm like, yeah, I, whatever. I'll probably get ripped apart, you know, left and right from people on Facebook. And uh, actually, it turned out to be the best thing I've ever done because 
that night into the next morning, all of a sudden I had 300 messages from people all over. Luckily, you know, I'm friends with a lot of people, um, predominant players and stuff. And, you know, they were giving me all this advice on, you know, how to deal with it. And actually there's a local lady to me that had bells. It's a bassoonist and, uh, you know, she's recovered too as well. So, uh, but you know, I got a ton of different, you know, directions to go. You know, I was told to do, there's a Feldenkrais exercise. It's where the brain reconnects to muscles, you know, it's facial exercises, basically, you know, I was told, um, acupuncture, which actually acupuncture was nice irregardless uh you know uh, i was told a whole bunch of other different you know uh, things to try to uh, remedy it by gosh a couple of days later i had two people dan miller and um marty bound from new york they both gave me bobby shoes number and they're like you gotta call him he'll get you back and i hooked up with bobby and that was the road back um i don't know what i why well, i owe everything to bobby i mean nothing else really worked um and that was part of the problem because I was trying too many directions. I wasn't focusing on one thing because that was one of the first things Bobby's like, you know, let's stick to this plan because I told him, you know, I was doing this Feldenkrais exercises like, no, 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 get rid of that. You know, don't do that. You know, do his way of doing it to come back and we'll, we'll do it. So what well, first thing was to learn to put the horn away for a bit. So, you know, I took some time off. Um, Bobby gave me some exercises, you know, cheek flutters, you know, doing warm compresses on the cheek, both cheeks actually, to keep everything even. Um, after a few weeks, I started uh, buzzing on a trombone mouthpiece. So that started facilitating, you know, the muscles again. Um, and then in a few more weeks, then I started buzzing on a trumpet mouthpiece again. So it was a long process to come back. I mean, it wasn't just snap the fingers and back. Um, but he continued to work with me and, um, I had my first gig back with Stahl about the third week of December that year. And it wasn't good. I was passing parts to everybody. I mean, I just, I couldn't play the whole gig on lead. I mean, I, I was, I was still fluttering the cheek and stuff. Um, you know, this was probably about eight weeks after the initial happening. So, um, but Bobby had me to the point where I, I could play again. There wasn't any double C's coming out or, you know, nothing. <laughs> there wasn't any flash out of my bell. That's for sure. Uh, but luckily, like I said, um, my guys in the stall band were always top notch and I could, I could pass part to anybody and know they could cap capably, you know, take it. So, um, at the end of December, probably about 10 weeks in, uh, started playing fairly well again, but I didn't have the endurance. Um, you know, I still felt weakness. I still would wake up and that's the thing, even to this day, there's some days I wake up with weakness in my right side, which scares the life out of me because every time it happens, I'm thinking, uh Oh, this is going down again, but thankfully it doesn't, <clears throat> excuse me. So, you know, that was, uh, 2020, the last stall big band gig was February. I was, uh, I would say I was about 80% back for that last job because that was it for the band. Um, well, then COVID started anyway. So um, I continued with Bobby getting help with him. Um, I think it took a solid year till I really felt comfortable, but everything changed. Um, probably the best thing about dealing with you was, um, and, and starting over to a, a respect, um, 
you know, I eliminated some problems that I had before. Couldn't use the same mouthpiece. The mouthpiece I played felt really small. So I had to find a whole different mouthpiece. Uh, so that worked out in that respect. Um, but I, I continued just to do every, do the protocol, uh, as he calls it. And uh, I practiced every day. Um, and I kept going forward. In hindsight, I forgot to also tell Bobby, oh, by the way, I lost about 90 pounds at the same time. Because that was another... <laughs> in looking back, we don't know which was worse. The bells are losing the weight dramatically. So it was probably, I made it probably harder on myself to come back by doing everything. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it was a good year. A after the, the stall band ended, uh, the drummer and I decided we were going to form our own or jazz orchestra. So that summer, even with COVID going on, we did some outdoor gigs in New Jersey and um, I started really feeling back myself, even though I felt like I was a completely different player. I mean, even to this day, I don't feel like, um, I feel like I'm a totally more finesse kind of player. I let, you know, the compression do more of the playing than to the big volumes of air or whatever. So, you know, we did some outdoor gigs and uh, things started going well. So, um, you know, at that point, I think I was starting to play better than I had before, just because I think I corrected some problems that I had uh, that I didn't realize I was doing. Because uh, I'm a more efficient player. I mean, uh, no doubt. I mean, I'm, that was probably the benefit of Bell's palsy is I became a more efficient player. Um, so that's kind of the, where, where that whole progress happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, without without you, without Dan Miller and Marty give me his his number because again i was going in a thousand directions trying to take everybody's advice and it was just too much information basically and maybe something else would have worked but um i went the right direction yeah well bobby is definitely one of the most insightful uh teachers that that i've ever met and the man's just he, he's operating on a different level uh yeah. and yeah, I, I I love him to death. And just such a great guy, just in general, you know. Um he, he he's kind of a no BS guy, but oh, yeah. but but still, you know, he just he's he just he he likes to see people make progress. And yeah, well, and, and he told me up front, he's like, You're number twenty seven on my list, you're not gonna fail. <laughs> so um, you know, he he was very um very positive in every every aspect and we had good conversations too outside but uh yeah i mean of a of a player of that caliber making you feel that comfortable was really a game changer for me i mean my my attitude since bell is completely different i mean i'm again i was more of, of that competitive player before bells now i'm not i mean i'll pass parts i'll gladly give people parts um and, and I try to support people more than ever. Matter of fact, there's been some people that have had bells now that I've reached out to saying, Hey, I've been through this, you know, I'd, I'd like to help if I can. I mean, I'm not Bobby Shue, but I can help you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, knowing that uh, someone has, has gone through it, someone has come through the other side of it. And um, yeah, that, that's certainly important. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, it's kind of interesting because you know, what you're saying about uh, you know, you've cor you've corrected some things about your playing that maybe you didn't realize before. It's like when things are working, uh, 
you know, if we're getting the, if we're, if we're at least getting close to the result we wanted, you know, like 90%, you know, it's like, okay, Hey, I'm good. I'm not, I'm not messing with anything. And sometimes what it takes is this kind of a, of a drastic, uh, event in our lives to make us take stock of what we're doing and to retool. And then in the process of retooling, then you can make those corrections that maybe you couldn't when you were, um, when you're working full time. I know, you know, for myself, like taking, I, I took, there's a period of time, like seven years where I didn't play my horn. And when I came back, it, my approach was completely different. Yeah. Uh, and then I've had a few surgeries, you know, since I've been back playing and, you know, where I can't play for six weeks. Um, and when I've come back from those, my, I, I feel like each time I come back, I'm approaching the horn a little bit differently. I'm trying to become a little bit more efficient and, you know, trying to correct whatever the things that were wrong and it, allowing the muscle memory to kind of dissipate so I right. can, can reinstall new, uh, new, more efficient approaches. You know, especially as we get older, man, we can't pound out all night long. That's crazy. Well, and for, for the most part, for, um, 20 some years, I really only played with Dave Stahl. I mean, he took me on gigs, uh, but I never ventured outside of him, which is another conversation. Um, but I just, um, I was content, probably too content. And some of the, you know, doors that have opened now have really changed, changed everything really. I mean, I even changed trumpets last year. I mean, I, I felt, started feeling that my, my previous horn was too big now uh, for what, how I'm playing now. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think I'm playing much better than I ever have really. I mean, yeah, I just still chip notes. There's still mistakes, but everybody does it. I don't dwell on them. Like I did, you know, um, it was and previously, it was one of those things where you were reminded of your mistakes. And now it's like, everybody's having fun. You know, it's more of a group. It feels more like a, um, a family section now, you know, it's not such a, you know, dwell on what, what has happened. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to keep that door closed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's, that's a good thing. And, and I think certainly it's one that we learn, you know, later in life, unfortunately, you know, it's life's too short, you know, yeah. to, to fret, you know, to fret about stuff that then in the grand scheme of things um, are really irrelevant. Yeah. You know? And yep. the, the search for perfectionism, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, you certainly always want to try and improve. You, you always want to do your best, but, you know, life is mistakes. And, yep. and uh, you know, and, and for me, I mean, I, maybe it's just my way of, of justifying the fact that I'm just such a sloppy player. But, you know, it's the, like, there, there are times when I'll beat myself up and I feel like, oh, man, I just sounded like, absolute doo-doo on the <laughs> gig and you know people will come up afterwards and they'll, they'll talk about how great the band was and they'll say oh, you sounded great you know and i really love the horns and things like that they don't know right. they didn't notice you know they didn't notice that you know i i yeah i i chipped that note you know because they're too busy you know enjoying the evening enjoying the experience and you know we hold on to that and then, you know, then you come to the next gig and you're like, oh crap, I hope I don't miss that high F sharp again. And, and so you set yourself up for failure instead of saying, okay, I missed it and it's gone. You know, the next time, you know, I'm, I'm just gonna do my best and, and hopefully it'll be there. And, and if I'm having fun, the energy will come out in my music and then everybody else is having fun. And then, 
you know, yeah. I'm well, I, you know, I, I, that's still a weakness of mine. You know, if I'm playing something and, you know, after we're done and somebody in the crowd comes up, you know, complimenting left and right, I still find myself saying, ah, I screwed this up. I screwed that up. And I shouldn't be doing that. I should be saying, you know, thanks. You know, that, taking it as a positive instead of, you know, thinking oh, I shouldn't have screwed that up or, you know, this might've been a little out of tune or whatever, but um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely one of my weaknesses yet. I'm trying to improve on. It's just not to, not to dwell on that the little stuff anymore. So, uh, cause again, it, it should be about making the music it shouldn't be, you know, what happened. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and even with like, you know, your, your recovery from bells, I, I know that there had to come a, a point where you were just like, what do I do if I can't play again? Because we get so invested in our, our identities become tied to the things that we do instead yeah. of the things that we do being an expression of our identity. Uh, you know, and I, I personally have gone through that with, with music and with, with other things that have done in my life uh, and just having to come to that, that thing of, uh, you know, I'm me and regardless of whether I'm playing trumpet or doing anything else, I'm still me. Right. right so, right. you know, when, when you were, when you were facing that, uh, you know, dark night of the soul, um, what kind of helped to help you to get through that and, or, you know, make peace with, with the process. Yeah, I mean, for a while, it was every night just doubting, I mean, is this worth it? Is this worth it? And then with COVID starting and nothing happening, actually ended up probably being a good thing because I wasn't put on the spot, you know, trying to, you know, playing, failing. Um, uh, and not that COVID was good, but I'm just saying, you know, it was probably a good time off. Let's put it that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, um, I guess the incremental progress is what started you know sparking me again because the first six weeks or so uh even with talking with bobby and stuff it was bad i mean it was it was one of those things where you know a lot of times i'd sit at night and dwell on you know all the stuff i got to play and is this real that you know may not happen again and you know it was reality i mean i, I could easily just put it away and forgot about it because it was it was a lot of work coming back um but like i said it seemed like every little progress I made was just another spark to saying, Hey, you know, this is coming, this is coming. And I, I just kept that daily kind of outlook, you know, anything that anytime I could gain another note or so, and, or I could do something different, uh, you know, cause for, for the longest time, uh, the, the right corner of my mouth, I mean, I was seeping air for even when I was back, I mean, probably for about five months after I still would have occasional times I would just seep little air that would drive me nuts. But, you know, one day when that didn't do it as much, I was like, Oh, okay, that's getting better. Now it, it wasn't one of these things where, you know, snap the fingers and everything got better. It was just a daily incremental, you know, progression. So, um, all right. So, I mean, so, you know, like you're saying, you know, you've, you've talked to some people, you know, reached out to some people who are, who are suffering from bells. Um, you know, and, and there's lots of other things that, that occur that, you know, you talked about, you know, you thought you were having a stroke. I mean, people that recover from strokes, from, from uh, heart surgeries, things like that. There are all kinds of things that can, that can happen that can um, create a breakdown in our, our physical system that prevents us to play. Um, and, you know, like we we're talking about, there's the mental uh, component of that as well. So just kind of as a general, you know, if, if there, 
if you were able to give advice, so if there's somebody out there in the audience right now that's that's watching this this podcast or listening to this podcast um, that's struggling with a, a physical change that's that's affected their playing, what is the one piece of advice or you know the the main piece of advice that you would want to give them about the attitude that they need to take with uh, with coming back? Well, I mean, first they got to look, you know, in their heart. I mean, if it's something that's not that important to them, you know, you got to put things in perspective. Um, I had a little extra incentive um, after the stall ban ended to continue. So that was also a spark for me. But, you know, if, if somebody's trying to come back from it, I'd say you got to stay positive. I mean, it, you got to find something every day that's going to make it better. Um, I know it's hard and, uh, you know, sometimes you, it's, you struggle to find anything that's better, but my, my thing was every day when I, when I, you know, tried to practice, I tried to either do something different or if I noticed something different, you know, sadly my computer crashed cause I kept the daily log, um, and I lost the log, but I kept daily progress and <clears throat> excuse me, before I lost that computer, um, unfortunately I didn't back it up. Um, but yeah, I mean, I went back and read my notes and it's like, man, all right, I see how everything went. And it was based on the fact of staying positive. Um, you know, and again, that was surrounded by positive people because all of a sudden I had support from people that I didn't, I didn't think would know me, um, you know, with the Facebook friends and stuff. Um, there's some people that are way above my pay scale that contacted me and was like, how are you doing? And it shocked me, you know, um, I don't drop names, but I mean, it's like people that I, you know, that I look up to, but I didn't think would even know me, but yeah, they read enough on my Facebook posts to, you know, actually contact me personally and say, you know, how's this going? And <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, allergies are terrible. Um, but you know, it was such an incentive when, when I would get positive feedback, um, along with noticing things on my set my own so um you know i i would say stay positive i mean and it, you know the other things in life too you, you gotta try to make peace with things um got us a, a lot of skeletons in my closet too but i mean i tried to make peace with as many things as i could you know to keep everything positive uh not let anything down well that's that's very very sound advice so thanks for sharing that all right. Well, uh, we have a few uh, standard segments that we need to get through uh, on today's episode, and uh, I'm going to transition to the the first one. And this is brought to us by uh, my good friend Michael Barkley of Barkley Microphones, uh, great ribbon microphones for for recording. There's one right there, um, and they're very affordable. So if you're you're in the market for a new ribbon microphone, definitely check Mike out. Um, and uh, this segment. Uh, is called Sound Off, and it's uh, about your approach to sound. And you know, you, we talked a little bit earlier about uh, you know listening to to different lead players, and um, you know, to try and uh, dis to establish some some concepts of of uh, you know how to approach the music. Um, but you know, when when you are working on your sound, uh, what are some of the the things that you do to uh, to get the sound that's in your head out of your horn? Well, I mean, again, it's it's listening because I, I think first is being able to hear what you need to play before you actually play it. I mean, um, 
you know, if, if I'm playing a Woody chart, I can hear the way Bill Chase played it, you know, without actually listening to the recording. And I, you know, I think it's so important to listen. And I, I, I can't stress the importance enough to, to, you know, educate yourself, be your own, you know, student of the past players. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, when I, when I go approach to play something, I mean, as far as the sound, I, I want the sound that I'm hearing from whatever band it was or whoever that I recognize most that played the lead book. Um, but yeah, I, I just, um, you know, I'm, I'm more, I, I'm definitely a, a lead player. I mean, there's no different, no doubt about that. Um, I just, those are the notes that I hear. I mean, in my head and stuff, you know, I, those are the phrases I hear. That's what I whistle, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, the basis of what, what's going on in my head. So, um, I, you know, if I'm listening to any, any music, I mean, I'm listening to the top line of the trumpet. Usually, I mean, maybe that's not a good thing, but you know, that's, that's where my mind ends. But I, I think the importance of being able to hear something before you play it is the, the ultimate, you know, way of approaching sound. Yeah. All right, cool. All right. Uh, our next segment is uh, called geared up. Uh, and this is brought to us by venture mouthpieces where technology design and craftsmanship intersect use the code trumpet gurus 21 to get 10% off your order. Uh, and this is about, gear got to talk gear and you mentioned that you since you've come back uh from your bells that um you've changed your gear setup so you, you've you've gone to a, a different mouthpiece size and a different horn um so you know what are you when you're looking at changing your gear you know this was out of necessity um you know what were kind of the motivating factors what are the things that determine the right horn for you and the right mouthpiece setup as far as the mouthpiece goes, it was, it was a struggle. I mean, I used to be a real specs nut. I mean, I would, I would look at specs on everything and I don't know, I got hooked up with um, a company in 2011 and, you know, the guy was like, you know, just forget, forget what it says, you know, find something that plays what you, you feel. And I played that mouthpiece for, uh, you know, up until bells. And when I was coming back, I just, it felt very small. Um, I don't know what changed. I mean, again, it could have been weight loss too, uh, because I was dealing with that. So, I mean, physically I changed and I don't know what, but, you know, I started working with a guy in Nashville with mouthpieces and, you know, I, I was trying different sizes, what fit right, what felt right, uh, without looking at numbers. Cause I think we get too involved with specs. Um, it's more about, you know, what, what comfortable and what works for you. So, um, you know, I'm working with Steve Patrick now playing his equipment, uh, his mouthpieces. So, uh, he's spot on. Um, as far as the trumpet, I played the same trumpet for about 20 years. It was actually, uh, Wayne Bergeron's Canstall. Um, actually a funny story about that. Um, when I bought that horn from him in 2001, I was at a rehearsal and the, I, everything was in the ball was rolling about buying a horn from him. And I get home from rehearsal and my wife goes, some guy named Wayne Bergeron called for you and you're to watch American Idol tonight because he's playing your horn to see how it works on stage. And I'm like, you don't know who Wayne Bergeron is? Because <laughs> she's not a musician. But, you know, I was like, I can't believe I was away to miss his phone call because I was such a homer for him. Um, but anyway, I played his cancel for, uh, you know, up until last year and uh, it just started feeling really big. So, um, you know, Philadelphia is a Yamaha town pretty much. And a uh, good friend of mine 
always has his trunk load of Yamaha trumpets, it seems. And uh, he switched me over to the Bergeron Yamaha and it felt tighter and it just, it was better in tune. It just played better overall than the Canstall. Again, you know, so much stuff is mental, I think. Uh, but I, it just, uh, I, of course, yeah, with working with Bobby, I tried to play one of the shoehorns, but it just didn't work. Uh, a little too tight for me. I wasn't quite that efficient. Maybe someday. Uh, but yeah, I, I switched horns too. Right now, I mean, I, I think I'm the between the combination of the Patrick mouthpiece and the Yamaha horn, I'm pretty much can be spot on when I'm feeling good. So, but very happy with what I'm playing now. That's good. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, you know, like you said, uh, you know, there there are some changes that when there are physiological changes. The you know the equipment may need to change to you know to balance that out so um you know you, well in age too <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely i mean it's funny because uh i i played uh i have a horn that i played you talked you mentioned jerry callet i had a callet that i played uh pretty much from the mid 80s uh up until maybe about 2000 something um and uh i had a little incident where i had uh this this i, I hate to admit this to all of you trumpet players out there. I, I took my, my horn with me on vacation to visit my family uh, in South Carolina, and I left my trumpet there. Oh. <laughs> uh, I realized that two and a half hours on the trip home, like, oh, crap, I left my horn there. Uh, and I had a gig, you know, in, in two days. I had a rehearsal the next night and, and a gig. And uh, I fortunately still had my callet sitting in my room, kind of my backup. And I played that horn and... I played a rehearsal, I practiced one night, played the rehearsal the next, played the gig. And my horn, my new, my, my regular horn showed up the day of the gig. And I'm like, oh, but I felt so good on that callet, man. I <laughs> noticed that I, I've been having trouble slotting or suddenly popping in. And I warmed up on both horns and decided I'm going to, I'm going to stick with my callet. You know, I went back to that, but, but, you know, my playing has, you know, kind of gone through these, these little dips and valleys, but uh, as I kind of been, I've been trying to work on some different things and I'm finding that, that the approach I'm using is working better on that horn than it is on my regular horn. So yeah, right. <laughs> God, you can get a rabbit hole on that crap. Absolutely. <laughs> That's why I say, stay away from specs, play what feels best. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It, I, I if I had the money, I would probably end up being worse than uh, Luso Loff. <laughs> I would have like fifty mouthpieces and fifty horns, you know, around me at all times. So I was I was playing a gig with him, uh, and he was doing the Maria Maynard solo. He must have changed mouthpieces four times during that solo. I mean, during that one tune, it's like, man, what a nut. <laughs> But hey, it worked for him. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. There there was no doubt that that Lou Lou was one hell of a player. Phenomenal. Uh, yep. Yeah. All right. So here's our final segment. And uh this is brought to us by Robinson's Remedies, our Robinson's Remedy Rapid Relief for your sore and tire chops. This is the Robinson's Remedy Rapid Fire Rounds, a series of questions that bounce all over the place. Uh and uh just want to get your quickest answer to these. So okay. Craig, are you ready, my friend? Yep, I'm ready. All right, here we go. First question, who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player? Both my parents. All right. What's your favorite book? Uh, Marty Bound sent me a talent code book. Oh, 
That's excellent book. Phenomenal. Yes. One of my favorites. Uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? <laughs> Anything on the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> I am with you on that. <laughs> um, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? You know, ironically, growing up, I wanted to be a truck driver. So I don't know where that came from, but <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, actually, the older I get, the more I'm into history. So I probably would be not a teacher, but some kind of historian as far as studying things. I mean, I, I really dig war, war history right now. I mean, especially Civil War. Mm -hmm. right. Well, maybe your love for trucks came. Yeah, you're, you're about that age. You probably remember smoking the bandit. Maybe that's what it was. It's I was not going to say that, but yeah, that's where it came from. <laughs> All right, well, that, your, your secret is out now. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> That's good. All right. Um, you could have a dinner party and invite any three living people, any three people in the world could come to your dinner party. Who would you want to have as your guest? I can't have a banquet. Oh, uh, well, no. Good. All right. Bobby Shue, Elon Musk, and this is going to throw you, Michael Jordan. Oh, well, that's it. I'm a big fan of MJ when it comes to uh, greatest you know, of all time. He's the goat, man. Um, same dinner party, three extra chairs, any three people from history. Well, since my faith tells me I'll see my parents again, it would have to be Maynard, Bill Chase, and Bud Brisboy. Ooh, man. Talk about some firepower. Yeah. Definitely. All right. Lacquer, plated, or raw? Yeah, there's another funny one. It just changed. I like silver plate now. I mean, I used to be more, you know, the brushed raw brass. Uh, but recently I switched to silver. Yeah, okay. Um, what's your favorite quote? Michael Jordan. I never lost a game. I just ran out of time. Oh, okay. I like that one. Uh, what's your greatest fear? I guess the future of my health, um, you know, it seems like it's being more of a struggle getting older. So, um, you know, I shouldn't make it about me. I mean, there's more problems in the world than me for sure. But, uh, you know, personally, you know, I don't know if I would come back from bells again. So there's, there's a lot of things, you know, going in my head for that question, but, uh, I fear, I fear, you know, the future for health really. Well, it definitely becomes a concern as we as we get a little older and absolutely. things. So yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh you could be granted one superpower. What would it be? Easy to heal people. You know, I saw my dad go through leukemia and then I saw my mom go through Alzheimer's. You know, the leukemia wasn't that bad to, to deal with, but Alzheimer's, man, there's nothing worse. Just that was traumatic for me losing my mom to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, healing, uh, we, we need a lot of healing in the world. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Physically and, and in many other ways too. Yeah. Um, what aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated? Uh, maybe not the playing part of it, but the progression of mouthpieces. I mean, that's such a thing with me. You know, you got to do this. You got to play that. You got to play that. I mean, I, you know, I know some people say, you know, high notes are overrated, but I think people that say that can't do it. Um, 
you know, and if, if I'm going to say something I don't do well is double tonguing or triple tonguing. So, you know, if I'm going to fall in that crutch, but um, no, man, I, I just, this, this progression that you got to do this, you got to play this, you know, you got to play a Bach horn to fit in. I don't, I don't subscribe to any of that. I mean, you are your sound, you know, before the equipment. All right. Good. Uh, what aspect do you think is the most underrated? Hmm. Well, I, I think, um, my personal experience, I think practicing quiet, uh, gains a lot of accuracy. Uh, I know, you know, a lot of people just focus in on, you know, playing as they're going to play it, um, play something as a performance, but, um, you know, a lot of my time practicing is high and quiet with mutes in, uh, I think it better regulates your compression. Uh, you, you pull the mute out, you have better control, you have better air control. So I think uh, it's not enough, you know, emphasis is put on that part of the pra practice. I mean, everybody's trying to play the notes on the page instead of trying to figure out a way to make that page play better. Okay, I like that. Um, you're able to go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music, what would it be? Get some courage. I mean, like I said, you know, coming from central PA to Philadelphia was culture shock. And I always, I sit here and wonder a lot of times, you know, what, what if I would have gone to temple, you know, if I would have, if I would have been exposed to, you know, city life where I would be, maybe nowhere. I mean, maybe I'd be back where I am. So, you know, going back, I would say, you know, be a little more, have a little more courage and, uh, Cause I, you know, I am typically a shy person. So believe it or not, <laughs> the trumpet talks, I don't. <laughs> no, no. Uh, and uh, what advice would you give uh, about life? Yeah. Something I have a hard time grasping on is staying positive about everything, trying to make something positive, you know, out of the worst scenario, um, you know, dealing with the health issues with my parents and stuff. You know, yeah, it was down times, but I, I learned something from each, you know, thing. Um, I learned to, you know, care more, love more, uh, and respect more. Yeah. All right. Final question for you, Craig Kenny. What do you want your legacy to be? <laughs> um, legacy. You know, the most important part is I hope my uh, uh, girls grew up saying they had a great dad. You know, I've, I've, in general, I try to put everybody else first and I, I hope, uh, you know, they put it in front with their lives, you know, uh, don't tear people down, try to put everybody first and uh, do your best. So, well, that my friend is a noble, noble venture. And, and I, I certainly, uh, know that you, that you're, you're moving every day towards that being, uh, being reality so just keep on keeping on man yep so yeah thanks for thanks for spending time with me and and seriously we got to get together uh like yep. person soon sounds good <laughs> real soon All uh, right. and uh you know best of luck and with with the uh the new band and uh, all your new ventures and things like that. And, and folks definitely keep an eye out. Uh, if you are in uh, the Pennsylvania, New York uh, area, uh, you know, keep an you eye can out. Always find me on Facebook. You can find uh, my band, which is the Liebman Kenny jazz orchestra. 
So E-A-B-M-A-N, Kenny Orchestra. We'll put the link in the show notes. And uh, yeah, and and please, uh, you know, if if you or or someone that you know is, uh, you know, suffering from uh, some sort of a, of a physical setback that's affecting your playing, uh, you know, recommend this, recommend this, this episode to them, uh, to, to anybody that you know that, that is struggling with this, because I, I think that Craig's story speaks volumes for, you know, what it takes to get through, uh, through that process. So, um, you know, thanks for, for being willing to share your, your story. So absolutely. All right. And thanks everybody for joining us on this episode. And as always, peace and slide grease. We out. Thanks, Jose. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group. Uh-huh.